that's right. It's not, I think it's, is it all of it? Yeah. Yeah. Philippians chapter 3. I haven't put it on the screen tonight, but it's good to keep. But all you've you got your Bibles. That's great. That's good. Okay, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and, and, it, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put on confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to, at uh, to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the, to win the prize of which, Christ, of which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up what we've already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For, as I have often told you before and now, uh, and now say again, even with tears, my, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious Okay. John, I'll pray for you. It's a big passage. <laughs> Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that again today that and, and yesterday we've been able to give out your living word um, to those that have been coming past the stall down 
at the air show. And we, we again pray the Lord that those Bibles will be opened and read and that your power will work. And we pray that for us this evening, Lord, that as we open this passage, that your, your spirit and your power will work in our lives, um, that we will be encouraged, um, but also challenged and changed in, in our thinking, in our actions. Lord, we thank you that your word is not just words on a page, it is living and active, and we pray that it's living and active in our lives day by day. We pray for John, pray you'll give him a renewed strength. It's been a uh, a busy day and rushing around doing different things, but calm his mind and uh, just uh, pray you'll give him clarity of thought this evening as he uh, brings something from this word this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you for having me here again. And uh, thank you especially for your patience and asking us to turn up a few minutes late. We did get to the sign that said, Welcome to Paynton by 5.28, so officially kind of on time. But uh, um, it was well worth it, quite honestly, really, because uh, in Saltash Gospel Hall, where we don't normally get an awful number of people, they absolutely packed it out this afternoon. We were very impressed at the work they were doing with their neighbours. And there are many people we've never met before, but they were really befriending them and doing well with them. And it was a good little program, wasn't it, Anthea? And... Uh, yeah, so that's encouraging. It's nice to see them really reaching out and doing stuff with the, with people round about. Really good atmosphere in that thing. So thank you for your patience with that. Now we've got it on the screen. That is amazing. I don't know how we did that. No, we haven't quite got the fonts right. right? Never mind. Um, yeah, we'll try this way. And if, if it's too messy, Kev, I'll plug the computer in, okay? Sorry? Yeah, well, I know, but it's, yeah, okay. Right, so Philippians chapter 3, we've already read it. It starts, finally, my brothers. And lots of books have been made by preachers down through this, the, the centuries about, oh, well, look at that, the Apostle Paul, two chapters to go. He says, finally, but it doesn't really mean it. <laughs> and so even, even he says, finally, and then goes on forever. That's not actually quite true. It's those first two words up there, to loipon, in the Greek that you're talking about. And it can mean finally. It often does mean finally, but it can mean lots of other things as well. Sometimes it means in summary. Let's sum it all up. What else is there to say? Let me just say this to you. It can mean that. It can mean what's more. Okay, we've said a lot of things already, brothers, but here's one more for you. <laughs> it can mean from now on. It's uh, something you would use. And, and sometimes in the New Testament, you find that. From now on, do this. Um, it can also mean the remainder. And actually, that's what it does mean. To the loipon remainder. And so in Greek, you would just say the remainder when you were going to say the last or the most important or the most basic thing to say. I think that's the important thing. What Paul is not saying here is, oh, here's my last point, and after this we'll have a cup of coffee. He's not saying that. What he's saying, it seems to me, is, well, guys, what can I say? We've we, we, we said all kinds of things about being the same as, uh, in our attitude as the attitude of Jesus. We've seen how he gave his life and thought it not robbery to be made equal with God in the form of a servant. All of that stuff. We've seen all of that. We've talked about how you need to be like that as well. We've talked about how uh, Epaphroditus and, and, and Timothy modeled that in themselves and how I want you to model it in the way that you welcome them. So what else is there to say? Well, it's back to the basics. Toloipon. <laughs> Here we are. And he says, rejoice in the Lord. Um, <clears throat> And uh, <coughs> two things you notice about this from the start, don't you? First of all, this is something that it's one of his repeated bits of advice. He says, it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. 
And he's obviously anticipating this letter being sent out in the church in Philippi. And the, the brother who's reading it saying, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And we go, oh, not again. <laughs> and uh, he's, he's saying, yep, yep, it's the same thing again, because this is what I really want for you. At the end of everything, you've got to be rejoicing. You've got to be happy Christians. And the second thing you notice is that he says, it's no problem to me to say it one more time, and it's a safeguard for you. Sometimes what you need is not new teaching. You need the same things repeated. It's the same when you're growing up. You know what it's like? Wash behind your ears. Oh, ma'am. No, wash behind your ears. You know, and you keep on needing the same piece of advice again and again until it sinks in. But it's also a safeguard for you. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, the more you tap into the joy of the Lord, the more you can rejoice, the more you are protected against all of the things that will get into the outside and stop you being the kind of person you need to be. Paul knows all about this because he's in prison. He could be facing death. He's never really written a letter when death has seemed so imminent before this. And now he knows that he could go home and be with Christ, which is far better, or he could stay here for the... He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He really doesn't know. But he does know that he's writing a letter which goes about, on about joy, 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 all the way through. There is no other letter of Paul's that mentions joy as much as Philippians. What's keeping him going? The joy of the Lord. Rejoicing in God. And he knows that if these Philippians want to keep going where they are, and face up to the pressures they're going to have to face, and stay united as, as they're tending not to at the moment, then joy is going to be at the heart of it. Why is joy so important? Well, I think it's because relationships die when they're taken for granted. When you stop enjoying your relationship with somebody else, when you take it for granted, that's when it starts to wither, isn't it? It's what happens in romantic relationships. When you settle down and you become so comfortable with one another, you don't express your joy in one another any longer. And the same thing's true with your Christian life as well. If you get used to it, if you, get, you take it for granted, the cross, the resurrection, yeah, we've heard all that stuff in Sunday school. And it doesn't come across with the same freshness and the same power anymore. That's when you start losing power. That's when the doubts and worries and the gripes start coming in. Why is God doing this to me? Well, look at what he's done for you already. I, I know all that stuff. But you have to keep on refreshing it. That's why the breaking of bread is so important, isn't it? That's why it's so vital to take yourself back to the fruit of the cross again and again and again. And remember, I was a guilty sinner, but Jesus died for me. Because the more you recreate the wonder of the relationship, the more special it gets. And uh, I think... Uh, that uh, this is something we, we, we all realize in human relationships, that the more you take somebody for granted, the less you're going to get out of that relationship, and in the end, the more it's going to die. It's true of your relationship with God as well. And so he says to safeguard what you've got. Rejoice. Keep on rejoicing. Keep it fresh. Keep it new. And then you won't give up, and you won't be tempted to, to lose heart. So after that, he starts talking about one of the two groups of people that he criticizes in chapter 3. Did you notice there's some in, in uh, verse 2? Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. And clearly, they are not people who are Christians. They are people who've made it their mission to turn Christians back to all the Jewish ceremonies, to make them toe the line and obey the law. Further on down, uh, towards the end of the chapter, you find that Paul's talking about people who are Christians, or at least claim to be. 
And in verse 18, he says, As I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Staggering thing to say about Christians, isn't it? But he says their destination is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. They claim to be with us, but actually, they are people who are enemies of the cross. They want a crossless Christianity, an easy ride to heaven, and they want you to do, do the same. So this, this first group here, he, he, he sounds very vehement, doesn't he? Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. And you might think, well, it's a bit strong, isn't it, Paul? You've really loosened your rag here with these people. Not really. I think what's going on, actually, is he's just poking fun at them. <laughs> he knows that really the Philippians are not in danger of these people. He just needs to, to look out for them, watch out for them. And they don't be fooled by these people. And actually, in Greek, <laughs> it all rhymes. It's kind of like, Toskinas, Toskakos ergatas, ten katatomen. And uh, it all rhymes. It's as, it's as if he's saying, watch out for those, where is it, dogs, those mutts, those mutilators, those malefactors. Or, you know, watch out for those, those canines, those cutters, those criminals. And he's, he's just using words that, 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 that rhyme to poke fun at them. He's not seriously bothered that the Philippians are going that way. But he's, oh, you've got to keep your eyes open because they're silly. And they would like, they would like you to think that uh, they are the circumcision. That's what Jews called themselves. He uses the same phrase in Galatians about his opponents. We are the circumcision, and therefore God is pleased with us. And he says, it is we who are the circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You want to know what the circumcision is, the people who are really set apart and marked as God's people. It's people who don't have marks on their bodies such as they want to give to you. And another mark of the fact is... is, is um, Poking fun at them, actually, is that when he says mutilators of the flesh, katatomen, that is very close to the word that means circumcised. But katatomen means a bodge job. You haven't done it very well. They just want to hack away at your bodies. That's not what it's about. The real circumcision that God is looking for is something quite different. And so I think in the rest of the chapter, he talks about two choices. First thing he wants to talk about, and this is where the, <laughs> the wording gets a bit wrong, two things you could rely on. And then later on, two things you could aim at. And finally, you've got two things you could, oh, hop A for. Hope for, not hop for. Okay, fair enough. So we'll get there. Okay. So let's look at those, those, uh, those to start with. Two things you could rely on. And he says these people are like dogs. Now, that's a cutting word to use as well, because the Jews who looked down on the Gentiles used to say, we are the circumcision, you people are just dogs. And Paul's turning back on them. Uh, all over Rome, and presumably all over Philippi, where if you remember, they spoke Latin because of the Roman colony. You'd see little signs outside people's houses saying, Cave canem, beware of the dog. <laughs> and Paul is saying, beware of the dogs, folks. But you're not the dogs, they are. And he's talking about his opponents and saying, they call you dogs, they're the real dogs. And they're mutilators of the flesh, and uh, they trust their own qualifications. We have been circumcised. On the eighth day of my life, my parents did something to me, which means that I am marked out as one of the circumcision. I have kept the law ever since, and you'll find me in the synagogue every Sabbath day. And I pray, and I give a certain amount of my money in tithes, and all kinds of stuff. And, and, and they're relying on that. And one thing you can do is trust your qualifications. The other thing you can do is know Christ. That, says Paul, is your first choice. 
He says, if you want to trust your qualifications, none of that bunch have got the same qualifications that I've got. And that's why he reels off his own. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. And he, he gives the whole account of all of the things that were to his profit. Now, be careful with this passage. Ben Witherington, in his commentary on Philippians, says, lots of preachers, when they handle this, talk about Paul uh, saying how awful and evil and repulsive it was to live the way that he had been living, building on these things. He says, no, Paul just thought they were profitable to him at one stage. There was nothing wrong with God's law. You remember how in Romans we've been reading that the law is holy and righteous and honorable. It's God's law. There's nothing wrong about that. But the trouble is, Paul says, it doesn't work. It's no profit to me. It doesn't bring me any closer to God. It shows a wonderful picture of how God wants people to behave or wanted them to behave until Jesus came. But it doesn't help me to live Christian life today. And so he says, staggeringly, whatever is to my profit, I now consider possible for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. Well, that's a typical polite 21st century uh, translation. Rubbish. Other translations say garbage or something like that. Actually, the word gubala in Greek means something pretty foul. It means the absolute dregs. It's what you would use for dog poo and things like that. And he's using the most forceful Greek word he can to say these are all good things. They're all wonderful. But I consider them worth no more than absolute rubbish at the bottom of the bucket compared to <laughs> something that's even better. And he says, this is the greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And all of these things I've allowed to slip away like rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. What does that actually mean? To know Christ. Uh, I consider good things as lost for the sake of Christ, and I want to know him and be found in him. What does that mean? Well, there are certain phrases he uses. I want to know him, he says, and the power of his resurrection. Those two things go together. The power of the resurrection means Jesus is alive. And to know Jesus is to know a person and have a personal relationship with a living human being. You can read the works of somebody who's died. You can trace the biography of somebody who lived last century and feel very close to them. But you can never know them because they're dead and gone. But if Jesus has risen again, is there to be known today? And furthermore, if Jesus has risen again, that means that the same power that brought him out of the grave is available to you now. And knowing Jesus means knowing the power of his resurrection as well. So that not only do you know somebody who changed everything himself, but you know somebody who's going to change you as a person too. And you will feel the power of the resurrection coming through you. Paul says, doesn't he, in the first chapter of Ephesians, that the power that is at work in us and he uses three different words for power just to, to tell us how great it is, is exactly the same as blasted Jesus out of the tomb into a new life again. The power of the resurrection is the same power that's working through us. And Paul says, I want to know this. I want to know more of this resurrection power in my own life. And that means um, a second thing, which is to be part of the fellowship of his suffering. Because when you live like that way, the world is not going to like it. They're not going to understand it. 
there'll be a lot they like about it because Jesus' resurrection life changing a human being shows you what a human being's supposed to look like. And there's, there's something there that people will be drawn to. But also, because they're part of a system that's got no time for Jesus, they will suffer too. And so the fellowship of his sufferings is part of the deal. And Paul says, I want it. Bring it on. I'd rather have that enough than, than, than just live the, the bland, anodyne life I can live on my own. I would rather suffer to know the resurrection power of Jesus than anything else. And there's a third phrase. And uh, <coughs> this phrase is becoming like him in his death. Going into the likeness of his death. Dying to the world around. Dying to the old things that held us back. Putting to death the misdeeds of the body <laughs> in the way that we quoted it in Romans chapter this morning and saying, I am dead as far as these things are concerned. These things are dead to me. I'm not responding to the same impulses anymore. I'm marching to the beat of a different drummer. I'm following a different set of stimuli because the old life is dead and I have died with Christ and I'm risen to walk in newness of life with him. And he says, if this is, if this is what I, I, I can do, then somehow I will somehow attain to the resurrection from the dead. And that's what it's all about. Attaining to the resurrection of the dead. <laughs> now, when he says somehow, we've got to be careful there because it sounds in, 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 in English as if he's saying, well, you know, I'm not sure what I ought to do, but uh, we'll do this resurrection life bit and we'll, we'll die with Christ and uh, we'll, we'll put things to death and so on. And somehow, it, somewhere or another, something might work and I might get to the resurrection of the dead. Sounds very unsure, doesn't it? But he's not, he's not really saying that. What would be a better translation, I guess, would be to say, um, I do all of these things and become like him in his death so that however it happens, by whatever way I can make it happen, whatever I have to do, I will get there. <laughs> he's not expressing doubt in the fact that the resurrection of the dead is available to him. He just doesn't know what he wants to do, but he's prepared to do anything he can to get there, to be with Jesus. Like John was saying about this morning, I just want to be with Jesus. <laughs> That's what Paul is saying here, isn't it? I want to be where Jesus is because it's the most important thing. And so that's your first choice. A choice about what you're building your, 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 your hopes on. Is it his past record? Is it things that people say about you? Is it the, 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 the way you've lived your life so far? Is it your religious CV? Or is it the fact that you're still going, pressing hard after knowing the resurrection power of Jesus in your life day by day, dying to your old life and just being un unresponsive when it tries to twitch itself back into life, knowing the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings and being prepared to take anything on for the sake of Christ. If that's the case, then you're heading for the resurrection from the dead. And there are two things you could aim at. That was the past. What are you building on to give you confidence as you face an uncertain future. What's the foundation of the whole thing? But now you get into the present. What are we aiming at? What's our life about right now? And he says, listen, I'm not saying I've got there already. I've not already obtained this. I've not already been made perfect. And he does mean perfect here. He doesn't later on when he uses the same word. This is a Greek word, telios, which means complete, not lacking in anything. And here, it means perfect, as it does sometimes. God hasn't finished the job with me yet. He's got a lot more to do. Remember, he said in Philippians chapter 1 that he's confident that the one who's begun a good work in the Philippians will continue to perfect it right through to the day of his appearing. Well, now Paul's saying it's the same for me, guys. Don't get me wrong. I am not saying I've made it and you haven't. I am saying I need to keep 
pressing on. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And your choice here is sitting still <laughs> and just waiting for heaven to dawn or pressing forward all the time. And there are many Christian spaces who are sitting still. And their Christian life is kind of like a, a trajectory upward, but then start to level out and stay on a plateau for a long time. Oh, when they're young, they're keen. They want to win the world for Jesus. They want to be the best sold out disciple that Jesus ever had. And then the pressures of life come in, and career, and education, and marriage, and family, and we plateau. We go through the motions. We're not progressing. We're not making any advances any longer. And Paul said, I don't want to be like that, and you don't want to be like that. Press forward for the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What does it mean? Well, Paul was always interested in athletics, as you find out in the, in the writings. He was obviously a sports fan of some kind, and he uses these analogies of races and running all the time, and he says um, there are, the, the, there are uh, several things involved if you're going to aim to reach a target. What do you do? The first thing is you've got to forget what is behind. You don't look back, you know? You're at sports day at the local primary school and uh, your son is right out in front of the pack and he's heading for the finishing line. And you think, that's my boy, he's going to win. And then he, 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 he turns around, hi, mum. And they all storm past him. You think, oh, not again. <laughs> Happens, doesn't it? When you're distracted, when you look off to the side, when you look back, you lose pace. And that's the same in the Christian life too. It's possible, isn't it, to be hung up on the past. But you're so proud of what you've done in the past that you start relying on it instead of moving forward. Or to be so embittered by hurts you've received from other people in the past. Or things that God has done in your life that you just don't understand yet. That you slow down. You're not moving quite so fast. And you live with that bitterness and you nurse the grievance and your progress just stops. Paul says just get rid of it. Forget the past. Whether the past was good or whether the past was bad, forget what's behind. That's finished with. The important thing is the target that's right in front of you. So forgetting the past. What's the second thing? It says forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. This word straining toward is a word you only find here in the New Testament. It's as if there's no other word in the Bible that he can use for this one. It's about maximum effort. It's about really going for it with everything you've got. You, you've forgotten what's behind and you just desperately want to get there. That's another reason, isn't it? That we need to keep on rejoicing. Because the more you enjoy the Lord's presence in your life, the more you're grateful and awed by what he's done for you already, the more you want to get to the end of the road. <laughs> the more you're going to want to see what's still to come. There's a great word used about what the Holy Spirit is in our lives in Ephesians and Colossians, and that's the word arabon, which means uh, um, uh, 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 it means a guarantee. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee that we're going to get there. But actually, the word in Greek means something more profound than that. The word actually means a down payment, something you pay down so that later on you can come back and pay a bit more of it. And, and pay the whole thing. You know, it's like uh, putting down an installment on your Christmas dinner or something like that. And later on, before Christmas, hopefully, you come and you pay the full sum. And Arabon is like that. And if the Holy Spirit is a down payment, then the more you know of the Holy Spirit in your life now, the more he's doing for you right now, and the more he's filling you with joy and, and giving you power and, and, and leading you from situation to situation, introducing you more and more to the life of Jesus, the more he's doing that, the more becomes your wonder. And what he's going to do one of these days. 
because what you're doing now is tasting just a tiny little bit of what he's going to be paying in full one of these days. And if the down payment is that good, and if you're enjoying it, then you're going to want to get to the end. You strain towards the mark because what you've tasted so far is so good. And there's a third thing as well. And the third thing yep, is pressing on towards the goal. And that's what Paul says he's doing. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Because all the effort in the world and all the forgetting in the world is no good unless you actually get there. And uh, that's, this, is, this is one thing that we need to remember, that we need to keep on going. Paul says in, in Corinthians, doesn't he, that he, he beats his body and keeps it under. He disciplines himself. And in actual fact, the word means I give myself a black eye. <laughs> it's that physical. I keep myself in trim. I keep myself under. Why? Lest having preached to others, I myself become a castaway. I think, Paul, come on, that's not going to happen to you. You're the great apostle who's written half of the New Testament. You've planted churches all over the, 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 the world, uh, the Mediterranean world, anyhow. You know, people look up to you in all, all, in all sorts of places. You are not going to be a castaway. But Paul says, no, I know I'm the son of sinners. <laughs> I know what's in me. In me, in my members, no good thing. And I can just as easily drop away as anybody. I need to keep on going right up to the goal. It's so easy to get almost there and then tail off and not quite make where I need to be. And so I want to keep pressing forward. I don't want to have to sing that hymn in glory by and by when I look on his face. I wish I had given him more. <laughs> but I want to give him everything I possibly can here. That's where I am right now. And there's one more. And with this, we're done for tonight. Two things that you could hope for. We've talked about what you're building on. As you look back to the past, what's the source of your confidence? We've talked about what you're doing now, pressing on towards the mark or sitting still on the racetrack. Now there's a future. What are you hoping for? What are you looking forward for? And again, Paul says there are a couple of things. And this is where he introduces these other people uh, whom he wants to criticize. Um, Join with others, he says, in following my example and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Watch other Christians. They will teach you an awful lot about what it's like to live for Christ. I remember when I used to, to uh, listen a lot to George Verwer, uh, leader of Operation Mobilization, when I was involved with OM years ago as a student. And he, 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 George only had about five sermons, and he kept on repeating them. But he did it in such an entertaining way, you really got the point. Although, you know, it was no problem for him to repeat himself, and it was a safeguard for us, so that was okay. And uh, one of the things he kept on saying again, again young people, read biography. And I remember thinking, no, no, no. I'm a literature student. I like novels. I like poetry. I like drama. But biography, no, nah, not really. But I know what he's talking about now. He was saying the more you look at the lives of Christians and see the mistakes they've made <laughs> and also the achievements they've made for God and the way they did it, the more you can learn about what it means to, to follow Jesus yourself. And that's one of the reasons that God has put us in the church, isn't it? There are all sorts of people all over great parks that you can learn a lot from. Perhaps especially the ones you don't get on with too well. Because they're the ones who get under your skin and teach you lots of important lessons. But one way or another, we learn from one another. And so Paul said, look out for people from whom you can learn. Join with others in following my example and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. The way we taught you to live is being exemplified by other people. And the more you look at them 
And the more you see Jesus working them, changing their lives, the more you will get a handle on what Jesus is doing in you and what he still wants to do that he's not doing yet. And so watch those people. Learn from them and keep on pressing forward. But then he says there are other people too. As I have told you before, and now again, even with tears, he says, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And if he was just scornful and poking fun at the first group of people at the start of the chapter, he's now getting really serious and sorrowful about these people who believe in the cross, or so they say, but they're living as enemies of the cross. They're saying the fellowship of his sufferings. No, 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 you don't need to suffer. All you need to do is believe in Jesus. And then you can live life pretty much as normal, but you've got your ticket to heaven thrown into the bargain. And Paul says it's not that way. Their, de their, their destiny is destruction. They're heading for destruction. And that might mean that they'll never get to heaven. It might mean other kinds of destruction too. You can shipwreck your life. You can destroy your relationships. You can blight your hopes here and now as a Christian by the way you live. And you can cause untold damage. We've seen that over the last few years in, in some prominent Christians, haven't we? Who have been shown to be living completely self-absorbed, materialistic lives. One thing in public, another thing in private. And of course, every time there's a scandal of that kind, what happens? Lots of other Christians around the world find it's hard to struggle. Just hang on to their faith because these people that they put on a pedestal, that they thought they were learning so much from, have turned out to be absolute fakes. And you can do immense damage and bring about your own destruction even before you reach the judgment seat of Christ. However, that's one thing. Their destiny is destruction. And then he says, perhaps why they do what they do. Their God is their stomach. It's their appetites. Now, I don't think he's talking about food necessarily here. At least I hope he's not talking about food. But he's talking about anything that we want to have that makes us feel comfortable and well cared for and just good, fills us with good feelings. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. The stomach's created by God to start with. But when you make it into your God, then that becomes the idol you're living for. For a certain salary, for a certain level of comfort, for so many holidays a year, for a bigger car, for all kinds of stuff, then you're in danger of that becoming, oops, becoming your God and taking over your life. And that cannot happen. And he says, this is happening to people who turn their back on the cross. They don't want suffering in this life. They don't want to associate with the, the suffering of Jesus. And therefore, they live for something quite different. And their hope is to bind up with who they are. And uh, he says, the third thing about them uh, is that their glory is actually shame. They'll show you their big cars. They'll show you their massive houses. They'll tell you what's in their bank account. They'll pretend to be big people. But actually, their glory is their shame. Because all they've done is built their wealth in the wrong places. They're looking for themselves and not for what God wants to do through them. And because they're turning their back on the crucified Christ, their Christianity is nothing more than a sham. And so he says, be careful about that. Don't follow that example, whatever you do. Look for people who live out the pattern we've already taught you, this pattern that's involved in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings and knowing Jesus and, uh, and the power of his resurrection. That's the way you've got to live. Don't look at those other people because that's one way of living. Or there is another. And he says, the other way is simply this, that you live as a citizen of a different kingdom. 
And he says, our citizenship, verse 20, is in heaven. Do you remember one of the most important things about Philippi was the fact that it was a Roman colony. It had been it was a place where lots of land was given to members of the 28th Legion after they finished their military service. And all of these ex-soldiers who'd fought battles together for the sake and the glory of Rome settled down in this patch of Greece next door to one another. And they kept up their customs. And they ate Latin food, uh, Roman food whenever they could. They had all sorts of things uh, brought across the sea from Rome. Uh, they wore Roman clothes. They had Roman customs. They had Roman baths in Philippi in those days. They had a Roman auditorium. All of those things. They were Roman in everywhere that where they were. And uh, if you'd ask them, are you citizens of Philippi? You, you know, that makes you Greek, doesn't it? Or is it Macedonian? No, 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 no. We are citizens of Rome. And Paul says, it's just like that for Christians. You live here, but your citizenship is elsewhere. See, that's uh, where Philippi is, towards the right-hand side of the map. That's where Rome is on the left-hand side of the map. And if you, 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 you calculate how uh, much time it takes to get from Philippi to Rome, the answer is it's a 780-mile journey, 350 miles either side to get to the coast, and then on that uh, narrowest bit of, of sea, where a little bit of Italy sticks out towards Greece, that's where you go across, and it's an 80-mile trip from uh, uh, Derinium to Brindisium. And then you've got the Appian Way leading up to Rome, and guess what? That's another 350 miles. So we're talking about 780 miles to go from one place to the other. How long would that take you? Well, anything from six weeks at the best of times to three months in the winter. It's a long journey. And so people who live best part of a 1,000 miles away from Rome may not know what's going on in Rome this week, may not have tasted any pizza or whatever it was the ancient Romans ate for the last few weeks because there hasn't been any, but they still feel their citizenship is somewhere else. And so Paul says, instead of being concerned with your stomach, instead of making that your God and trying to, to build up your own comfort in life, you can have a citizenship that's based somewhere else. And he says, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await as a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying here is, first of all, you are a subject of a distant king. You're not the same as other people in the world around you because your allegiance belongs somewhere else. And you belong to the king of heaven, not the king of this world. He's saying that you're submitted to his authority. We eagerly await him because by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, he's going to transform us. And so you recognize, too, that Jesus has the power to bring everything under his control. You ask Philippi, uh, people in Philippi, who is the greatest leader in the world? Caesar. Who's got the greatest power in the world? Caesar. Who's got the biggest army? Caesar. There was no doubt about who they were submitted to. Submitted totally to the authority of a, uh, somebody who was ruling 780 miles away. <laughs> and it's the same thing for Christians. Either we live under the authority of Jesus or else we go native. Do you know, at the time when Hadrian's Wall was built, there was a Roman legion. Well, it wasn't a whole legion, but a, a large part of it who just went missing one day. <laughs> they were in the north of England and uh, they were stationed there and they went over the wall. And we don't know what happened to them. They just never came back. We suspect that they married local girls in Scotland because obviously they're pretty beautiful. I married an English one, but hey, can't know. And uh, uh, they just settled down. 
they found a patch of land, they lived there, they decided they didn't mind rain or images, and they just settled there. But we don't know. They just disappeared from history because they had a commitment to the emperor back in Rome which they decided just to forget. Now, it's possible for a Christian to go native in just the same way, isn't it? To start living just like everybody else around. And you know what? If you do that, you disappear from history. <laughs> you will never do anything for God of any consequence in your life. But if you live faithful to the king uh, who's so far away, if you submit to his authority, then a third thing will happen. You'll wait for his arrival, knowing that your great hope in the future is not more wealth, not more comfort for your stomach or anything like that, but a king who's going to transform you into his own likeness. He'll transform our lowly bodies, says Paul, so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brother, she says, starting on chapter four, you my love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, friends. Take the right choice about the past, what you're building on for your confidence before God. Take the right choice about the present, how you're pressing on towards the mark or not. And take the right choice about the future. Where do your hopes lie? What are you looking forward to more than anything else? That, it seems to me, is what chapter 2 is saying. Are you coming back up, John? John? Great. Brilliant, thank you. Relax now, when you get home. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thanks for being with us today. Um, it brings, well, I always, um, brings up memories that... Uh, I think about this passage when, when Gideon, because he loves to run and he just wants to run all the time. But he, he, he is the, the one that cannot just look forwards. He's always, you know, at sports day, he's looking where his friends are. And he's, he's at the, he's at the, you know, he's winning and he's, and he's slowing down. And it's like, come on, just focus on the, on the end point. So it always brings, yeah, always this passage. We're going to stand and sing a closing song, um, one that you know very well but fits in really well with this passage this evening called All I Once Held Dear. Maybe. Let's stand.